what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David, as we continue to quarantine, self-isolate, everyone getting through this COVID-19 crisis together. David, how are you doing? Well, I'm holding up pretty well, Neil. How about you? Good to hear. Good to hear. We are doing well here, really limiting to just essential trips, staying in the house a lot. So lots of time to listen to podcasts, which is a good thing. Speaking of which, David, are you ready to record this podcast? I suppose I could record a podcast with you, Neil. All right, then. You are my brother, and I have to ask you this question. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's 1622. And in the southwest African city of Luanda, peace negotiations between the colonialist Portuguese and the representatives of Ndongo, a local kingdom, are about to begin. The king of Ndongo's sister, Nzinga, sent to lead the negotiations, arrives. The Portuguese governor sits waiting on his chair, surrounded by his similarly seated advisors. But there is no chair for Nzinga. He gestures for her to sit on a mat at his feet, a petty power play, to try and begin the negotiations with himself in a more powerful spot. But Nzinga has prepared for this. She makes a brief gesture, and one of her servants goes down on all fours, ready to serve as her chair for all the long and tedious hours of negotiation to follow. Wow, David, that is a dedicated servant right there. Take us back to 1622 in Africa, What was it like? What was the world like at that time? So, this is an interesting time period in Southwest Africa. The area is the heart, really, of the slave trade. But this is a very early period for the transatlantic slave trade. And the arrival of the Portuguese as a colonial power rather than just as a few merchants occasionally arriving in ships but actually holding territory. This is a very new thing in Africa at this point and especially in this region of Africa. And it is upsetting all of the local traditional power structures and societies because the Portuguese are arriving to trade for slaves to send to their colonies in Brazil and in the Caribbean region. And that is bringing in money, big money for the time and place, but it's not flowing necessarily to traditional leaders. Instead, it's flowing to warriors who are ruthless enough to kidnap people to sell them into the slave trade. And that, needless to say, upsets the leaders and rulers of the area, the various kingdoms in the area. And that leads, inevitably, to conflict between the Portuguese 
and the local kingdoms, which is how we end up with someone like Nzinga trying to negotiate a truce between her kingdom and the new colonial powers that are having such an effect. So what were the Ndongo like before the Portuguese arrived and started all this, David? Well, they were a fairly typical African kingdom of the pre-colonial period. They did have some slavery. That was a regular concept for them. It didn't involve agricultural work very frequently. Instead, it was usually a punishment for criminals or other transgressors who were outside the bounds of their ordinary society. And it was usually limited to the lifetime of the person who was enslaved. Not always, but usually. And it wasn't necessarily very prevalent. It wasn't a huge percentage of society that was enslaved at any one time. And other than that, it was a mostly agricultural society with strong and proud military traditions that had existed for thousands of years in a relatively low technology state, generally at a, you know, iron working level of technology, but no concept of gunpowder, no long range oceanic transport. And they had a very elaborate culture trying to run through the entirety of a culture of a region like that would be more than I could do in an episode but they had powerful matrilineal nobles they had the kings the Angolas as they were called who were not members of that matrilineal nobility but instead went by a patrilineal system a very ordinary society for its time and place all right seems like things were pretty good there but of course the portuguese had to show up so let's jump forward david to 1622 and what was the situation as we sit down for these negotiations so things for the nadongo are pretty bad one of the signs that things are pretty bad is the fact that nzinga has been sent as an ambassador because as it happens, I've mentioned that she was the sister of the king, the Angola of Ndongo, but he didn't actually like her. In point of fact, she really didn't like him because earlier he had allegedly killed his father, the previous Angola, in order to take the throne. And whether or not he actually did that, he felt the need as he ascended to power to ensure that he would have no rivals for his new throne. And to do that, he murdered Nzinga's newborn son and ordered that Nzinga and her sister be sterilized so that there would never be a new male heir from either of his sisters to be a potential rallying point for dissent in the country. I could see why that would piss her off, David. You can imagine that she was not happy about any of those events, so she actually fled the country into exile in Matamba and remained there until 1622, when her brother, 
desperately sent messengers reporting that his forces were losing the war and he needed to send a diplomatic team to the Portuguese in Luanda and he wanted Nzinga because her father had apparently liked her a lot and taught her about being a leader in traditional Ndongo society, about Portuguese culture and customs, including getting a tutor to teach her Portuguese, which is one of the reasons why she's so important for this diplomatic mission, and also about warfare. Even before her father died, she was already recognized amongst her people as a successful commander in their army. This was the father who her brother may or may not have killed to ascend to the throne? That would be the father, yes. That's another reason why Nzinga and her brother are sort of unlikely allies in 1622. Somewhat ironic for him that his potential savior, his negotiator, has those skills because of the man that he may have murdered. A little bit, yeah. So things aren't going well for the Ndongo. They are the weaker side in this negotiating situation, David? It's fair to say, yes. Is there any leverage that Nzinga can bring to bear in these negotiations? She's got a few points of leverage. Most of them are based on the fact that the Portuguese at this point still would prefer to be merchants trading slaves, which is a terrible thing to do, obviously, but actually trying to enforce their power over the societies in the region is an ambitious step that the Portuguese have not committed to at this point. So Nzinga's actually able to get a fairly good peace treaty signed with terms that are relatively generous simply because she's able to communicate to the Portuguese in their own language that if they're willing to sign a peace treaty, the Ndongo are willing to work with them on a business level. Unfortunately, that peace treaty soon proves hard to enforce, not on the Ndongo side, but the Portuguese rapidly find out that their own merchants are frequently arriving without direct contact with the governor and ignoring the terms of the peace treaty, invading areas that are under Ndongo control in order to slave raid. So they actually get their peace treaty, despite the Portuguese playing tricks like not having the chair for the negotiator from the Nindongo, and the weak bargaining position they were in, they get the peace treaty done. But what's signed on paper isn't holding up when it comes to the Portuguese slave raiders who are coming and just disregarding the treaty? Precisely. And this puts us into a period of tensions between the Portuguese and the Ndongo, and of course inside the power structures of the kingdom, where Nzinga and her brother are now sort of both powerful figures in the government, but that doesn't mean they like each other. And in 1624, Nzinga's brother dies mysteriously, and Nzinga declares herself regent for his young son. So despite all his plans to ensure that he didn't have 
any challengers to the throne, Nzinga herself is going to become the one in charge, at least for now, while his son is young. At least for now, which rapidly turns into for quite a while, because her brother's son then mysteriously dies. I guess mysterious deaths run in the family, David. And this leaves Nzinga in uncontested control of the Nindongo for almost two or three years, depending upon when exactly you believe that her nephew died, since that's never been precisely dated. But then the Portuguese arrive again. A new governor decides that the old treaty was a mistake, and instead of honoring it, he's going to invade and conquer the Ndongo once and for all. Rude, David. I can't believe that the Europeans wouldn't honor a treaty they signed with a weaker colonial power. I know, it's such a twist. You could never have seen that coming. But the fundamental structure of the situation hasn't changed. The Ndongo are the weaker power, and now that the Portuguese have bent their forces to their conquest, it seems like there's no hope for Nzinga to withstand this onslaught. So what are they going to do, David? Does Nzinga have a plan this time? She got out of it once with her negotiating skills. What's she going to do this time around? Well, first, she loses. She fights back against the Portuguese occupation, but the Portuguese army is too strong, their technology is too advanced, and her army loses, and she's forced to flee into exile with her remaining loyal warriors. In exile, she ends up meeting up with a band of Imbangala, which is a term used in the histories of the area to refer to local Africans who had become slave raiders selling to the Portuguese and other European powers. So these would be her enemies, the Imbangala. These would be her enemies, usually. But in this case... Forced to flee into exile with no other hope, she allies with them, then turns on their leader, possibly murders him, possibly not. It's not really clear. But she ends up leading this particular large band of Imbangala, plus her loyal remnants of her army. And she moves to the country where she'd once been in exile before, fleeing from her brother, the kingdom of Matamba. So where's the kingdom of Matamba, David? Is it nearby? It's very nearby. It's actually right on the border with a larger kingdom whose name has lasted into history a little bit more. The kingdom of the Congo are her neighbors to the north and the Ndongo and Luanda, which is now the modern capital of Angola, are just to her south. And what are they going to do in exile to presumably want to try to get back into power in Ndongo? Well, the first thing she does is kidnap and kill the king of the Matamba and then install herself as the new Angola of Matamba, which goes surprisingly well. And then she begins consolidating power and raising an army. And that turns out to be a fairly lengthy process because many of the local nobles are sort of 
not in favor of a foreigner just showing up and taking over the entire kingdom. But with her military skills, she crushes all resistance, becomes the undisputed Angola of Matamba, and begins preparing for a counteroffensive to retake Nandongo from the Portuguese. But she knows that to do that, she's going to need some allies. That's quite impressive so far, David. She's just gone next door and taken over a different kingdom. Where is she going to find allies? Well, she goes looking for allies in the kingdom of the Congo, uh, which is a large African kingdom directly north of her, so it makes a lot of sense. She does find a lot of support there. She also finds out that the king of the kingdom of the Congo is actually cutting a secret deal with the Dutch, who are enemies of the Portuguese, but also Europeans with access to European technology and tactics. And Nzinga decides to get in on that. So she forms a secret alliance with the Dutch and prepares for her counteroffensive to retake the Nindongo. Those wily Dutch finding a back door into this whole situation. How involved are they going to be in this counteroffensive, David? Well, in the initial counteroffensive, they are fighting alongside Nzinga's troops, and it is remarkably effective. But once they've captured the city of Luanda, which was the Dutch objective because they want to set up a merchant outpost there like the Portuguese had and insert themselves into the slave trade. The Dutch interest in taking out the Portuguese garrisons that are in the interior quickly wanes. They no longer really want to help with a, you know, difficult and dangerous military operation when they feel like they've gotten what they wanted. So Nzinga has to try and run the sieges on her own. And where the initial offensive with European weaponry and tactics to keep the Portuguese pinned down, while Nzinga's troops could be effective with their traditional styles of warfare, in this later period where they are forced to operate on their own, they quickly realize that they can't seize fortified positions from the Portuguese. But on the other hand, the Portuguese can't break out of their fortified positions any more than the Ndongo and Matamba warriors can break in. So this has created a bit of a stalemate here, David. Indeed. And that's where Brazil enters into this story. Okay, Brazil's a long way from Africa. How do they get involved? So the Portuguese had a colony in Brazil predating this period that was one of the reasons why they were so interested in a slave trade with Southwest Africa. And the Dutch, actually one of the reasons why they'd wanted to ally with the Congo and then with Nzinga, is because they were planning to try and seize the Portuguese colony in Brazil. But that didn't go so well for them. And after their efforts in Brazil had mostly failed, the Portuguese took their army from Brazil, crossed the ocean, and used it to recapture Luanda 
and lead an offensive against Nzinga's forces in Ndombo. Okay, David, so Luanda has gone from being the Ndongo capital to being the Portuguese-held back to the Dutch, back to the Portuguese. Am I keeping track? Yep. And the Portuguese have managed to recapture it because they brought their army from Brazil into Africa. Is there any hope left for the Nindongo? Precious little. Precious little. And the Portuguese army triumphs everywhere on the battlefield. But the Nindongo outlast them, essentially. It becomes a guerrilla war very quickly, where the Portuguese can't track down where Nzinga's warriors are, where they're based, and even though they can defeat them in stand-up fights, they can't occupy the territory and start bringing in civilians and merchants because the warriors are still there in the jungle waiting for the kind of soft targets that they can effectively strike at. How big is this area, David? And you mentioned it's a sort of jungle terrain. What is the uh, topography like? So this is classic African jungle region. There's a lot of hills. There's a lot of jungle trees. Very few horses, partially because of disease, but also because the terrain is not very good for horses. And in general, it's difficult to move around, move inland in this region up until the 20th century once road building really starts to take hold. And it's this terrain that is the best asset of the defenders. It does sound like the perfect cover for a guerrilla war. I'm guessing the Portuguese aren't going to be able to just bring in helicopters and employ a grasshopper strategy. What are they going to do, David? There won't be those kind of counterinsurgency tactics in Angola until the 1970s. So instead, the Portuguese focus on a slow operation, retaking specific points, and then very carefully clearing them, bringing in heavily armed forces to hold them down, and in general, it seems like the Portuguese are in trouble. But then the Portuguese reveal their latest alliance and are able to turn everything back around again because the Portuguese have cut a deal with the most powerful groups of the Imbangala to cut through Nindongo to come to them with the slaves that are the business that the Portuguese want to be doing anyway. And as they move through Nindongo, they're able to be more effective at countering the local guerrilla tactics because, in a lot of ways, they are locals, just ruthless ones. So the Imbangala, David, are, as you mentioned, slave raiders, African slave raiders. Yes. Now, is this an example of what you were talking about right at the beginning of the podcast, how the power structure has been upset such that the traditional kings and other political leaders have lost their power as the Europeans empower those Africans who are willing to engage in the slave trade and ruthless enough to actually take slaves and sell them to the Europeans. Exactly. Nzinga is 
ruthless enough to engage in the slave trade. She'd done it before. But with her enmity with the Portuguese, obviously she can't sell to them. So now that the Dutch have been driven out, she can't engage in the slave trade at all. And that is a major reason why her defense of Ndongo is finally starting to fall apart after decades of guerrilla war because the Imbangala are able to forge armies of people who want to make some cash by working in the slave trade, basically. And they're able to terrify most of the countryside into compliance with their military force. So what year are we up to, David? And is this the end of the line? Well, let's jump to the end of the line. 1661, 1662. It's sort of not a clear date when Nzinga's uh, guerrilla war in Nandongo really ends. But even with the end of her defense of Nandongo and with the Portuguese installing a puppet Angola to run the area as their colony, which it will remain up until the 20th century, we haven't mentioned Matamba recently. As it happens, the Portuguese never really broke into Matamba in a big way. So in the 1660s, as the 1660s dawned, the Portuguese actually came right back around to where we began and signed a peace treaty with Nzinga, acknowledging her as the Angola of Matamba, and basically promising to leave that country alone. And Nzinga then decides to do two separate things with her newfound peace with the Portuguese. She officially converts to Catholicism and attempts to begin diplomacy in Europe to try and strengthen her country. And she also leads a campaign against the Imbengala, now that the Portuguese are no longer backing them up, at least on her own territory, she's able to crush many of the warrior bands and restore central authority in Matamba. And in 1663, she dies, ending the story of Nzinga proper, but not the story of the kingdom of Matamba, which will last another hundred years before the Portuguese finally conquer it in 1756. So not the outcome she wanted, but she does end up creating quite a powerful country in Southwest Africa. Absolutely. And she delays the Portuguese conquest of Angola as a whole, as the Portuguese will name it after the rulers who lived there and their title rather than anything that the locals would have called it, bizarrely enough. It's hard to say by how much, but certainly the fact that it took them a hundred years to conquer the kingdom of Matamba suggests that Nzinga's influence in Africa was very powerful. And did the guerrilla warfare that she used there, did that influence future guerrilla tactics? It's always hard to say how much it influenced any specific future guerrilla tactics. But certainly, Angola would remain a, a heart of resistance to Portuguese rule in Africa up until the 1980s, 
And you have to imagine that there's some continuity in terms of the tactics that the people who lived there used as resistance against their colonial oppressors. She certainly set the template for success. Indeed. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I was happy to, Neil. We hope you enjoyed it as well. Feel free to send us a message. Let us know what you thought. On social media, you can find us at When Art Thou, oh brother, when art thou at Outlook.com if you'd like to send us an email. And make sure you like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. David, we like to end with a quiz. So this week, I thought we could do a quarantine quiz. All right, that sounds topical. I hope it will be topical, but don't worry, it's still history related, so not too topical. Oh, good. Let's start with the history of the word quarantine itself. It comes from the Italian for what number? I would guess 40, just off my knowledge of French. Okay, I was going to say your Italian's pretty good, but I guess it's more your French. <laughs> You're right, it is 40, quaranta. And in fact, quaranta giorno means 40 days. Excuse my pronunciation. Uh, and it comes from one of the earliest quarantines when ships returning to harbor in Venice were made to wait in the harbor for 40 days to stop the spread of the plague. In the U.S., David, quarantine was a state or local government jurisdiction until 1878 when the Congress first passed a federal quarantine law to deal with what disease? 1878. I really have no idea what disease they would have been dealing with then. I should know it since I did all my research for our podcast on the epizootic of 1872, but I don't. So I'll just take a guess and say smallpox. Good job plugging our last episode, David, the epizootic. Go back and listen to that one if you haven't. But not such a good job getting the answer to this because the disease we were looking for was yellow fever that brought the federal government into the quarantine business in the United States. Next question. Historically, what color flag do ships under quarantine fly? I believe it's the yellow flag, Neil. You're right, David. Historically, yellow is the color of the flags that they would fly. It's the maritime symbol for Q, the yellow flag as in quarantine. But today, a ship flying a yellow flag actually means the ship is clean and they're requesting an inspection. A ship under quarantine flies the yellow jack, which is divided into four squares, two yellow, two black. So a bit of a change from the historical way of doing it. Gotta move with the times. Let's go back to the first earliest mention of quarantine, David. It's found in which book of the Bible? Which book of the Bible would include a mention of quarantine? I don't remember any major stories about quarantines from my Sunday school, so I'll guess it's in that classic book of laws and regulations, the book of Leviticus. You're right, David. Bang on Leviticus. Leviticus 13 verses 4 and 5, if you want to go look it up yourself. The earliest mention of quarantine. And jumping forward to a much more modern quarantine, how long were Apollo astronauts quarantined after returning to Earth? I knew that they were quarantined. Um, I feel like it was quite a while. I'm going to say maybe 48 hours. 
Uh, it was quite a while, David. Even longer than that, 21 days was the quarantine for Apollo astronauts after they returned to Earth. They wanted to make sure they didn't have any space infections. So we can all pretend we are astrological explorers returning to Earth. Stay in quarantine. Wash your hands. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>